Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. As the host of a show that provides a significant amount of coverage to Canada's darkest and sometimes most hopeless events, I make a point to, whenever possible, direct the show's attention towards a story that has potential to do some good. Tonight is one example. Very shortly, we'll be joined by a man who has spent the last five months on a desperate search for his missing daughter. Sadly, the trail he is following is quite vague. At the time of her disappearance, his 27-year-old daughter was pursuing her dream to be a professional musician in Hamilton, Ontario. However, suddenly, and with very little warning, she seemed to find herself on the brink of some sort of crisis. On the morning of January 10th, she would phone her parents in Calgary, pleading for help to return home. You have one new voice message. First voice message. I'd really, really, really like a plane ticket out of Hamilton to Calgary, please. And I would like to come home and visit you and Dave. I'm missing you so much. And I love you so much. So that's that's all I want in the world is to see you in Dave. I love you both so 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 much. So um, uh, if you could please um, uh, if you could please help me out with a a plane ticket, that would be that would be really really greatly appreciated. Okay. Shortly after leaving the voicemail you just heard, she did connect with her parents by phone, and the things she would have to say, quite simply, were disturbing. It was obvious she needed help, and she needed it fast. But sadly, before help arrived, she walked out of her apartment, into the cold air and the pouring rain. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we will be joined by her father, Dave Clark, and our topic is the disappearance of Holly Clark. It was her musical talents that led her to leave Calgary to pursue opportunities in Ontario. Holly Ellsworth Clark was living and performing gigs in Hamilton, but her voice has gone quiet and her family is desperate to hear it again. The 27-year-old left her home impulsively with no personal belongings. Police say they followed up on every single tip and possible sighting. We have no information at this time to suggest that there's anything criminal in nature related to her disappearance. When Holly left her residence, she was distraught and in crisis. We understand, um, you know, the family is very desperate. They wanted to reunite with their daughter, and I can tell you that Hamilton police want nothing more to be able to make that happen. There's been no activity on her bank or credit cards. Hamilton police are now asking residents to check their sheds, yards, and garages for any sign of home.
So we'll start with it with an introduction. So Dave, why don't you tell my listeners a, a little bit about yourself and like who you are, why you're here talking to me. So just give a bit of background. Well, uh, I'm here talking to you because Holly, my daughter, went missing and uh, because I care about her and I just don't want to let it go. And I, I owe her, uh, you know, as much uh, effort as I can put out to try to find her. Basically, that's why I'm here. I don't know what else you want to know about me. I'm, I'm a carpenter these days. That's what I've been doing for the last uh, 15 years or so. We're based in Calgary. And I understand you. It was you've been in Calgary since Holly's been born. Like she was raised in Calgary. Uh, we moved there when she was about three. I used to be a, a teacher in Newfoundland. I, I taught adults in after the fishery closed down, and I could see that that was coming to an end. And I came off to Calgary, pursued uh, an academic career in drama, if you could believe that, and uh, wow. then realized that uh, I didn't really want to move my kids again. And so I went back to something that I'd always been doing. It's been like three or four generations of carpenters in the family. So, oh wow! Yeah, tell me a bit about about Holly growing up. Like, what was what kind of kid was she? What were her interests? Maybe walk me through like her childhood. Uh, Holly was uh, she was kind of like a changeling in the family. She was uh, extremely outgoing and uh, open and warm and lively and. The rest of the family would be very shy and tentative to get to know people and whatnot, but Holly would uh, approach people without any hesitation and find out what she wanted to find out and uh, and introduce herself. We were sitting on a we were sitting on a beach, such as we have here in in Alberta, which is uh, it's it's actually an old mine shaft that's filled with water. It's a great story. And we found out the information about it because Holly, at the age of, I don't know, five, six, we were sitting there at, on the beach thinking about going for a swim. And there was a guy sitting out on a rock and she waded out onto the rock and had a long conversation with him and came back and told us the whole story of this uh, this uh, pond and how it had been created. And <laughs> and that's must have stuck with her through life because I've seen a video of her performances on stage and she certainly wasn't shy as a musician. Uh, no, no. At that point, she had a, a lot of experience sort of quelling her uh, anxiety because uh, as, as a wrestler, it's, it's one of the most intimidating things you can do is to, is to go out and face one other person you know, with just yourself. And uh, so she had a lot of experience with that. But in addition, she pushed herself past any kind of fear that she had. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the, her her wrestling background. Was this something she did in, in high school? And when was this that she was involved in wrestling? Well, my oldest daughter, Kate, knew that I wrestled. And she asked me to come and coach her team. So I did. And Holly was the youngest child, and she just wanted to come along. So she came along and uh, I guess ultimately, because she really worked really hard, she became sort of the, the star in the family. And, and I believe the Holly's interest in wrestling kind of preceded her interest in music. Is, am I getting that right as far as following her hobbies? Well, we had, we had instruments around the house. I tried to play the mandolin at one point because I really liked the sound. I uh, played the guitar, but, but she... Uh, 
always was drawn to the instruments and sort of played with them as, as a child. But uh, no, she had a she had a long successful wrestling career before I, I heard her play anything. She was a national champion, I think, four or five times, mm -hmm. and um, uh, Pan Am champion once. And I hadn't really I'd heard her play one song by the time she was done with it. And how did her like? Because she's known so much now as as a performing musician and a songwriter. Like, how did her interest in music start? and develop into the point that it seemed to overtake her life at one point. I showed her three or four chords. She learned to play I Hate Winnipeg. And uh, <laughs> and then I didn't hear her play anything else for uh, for two or three years. Now, I've, I've heard since then that she used mm -hmm. to go over to her friend's place and torture them <laughs> with practicing. But we didn't hear any of that at home, really. She came home one day and she played four or five new songs that she'd written. And I suggested that she go to an open mic, and, and she did, and she was almost immediately adopted, like within within maybe two or three months. Really skilled musicians just adopted her and uh, and started playing with her, invited her to be part of their bands. It was, it was quite shocking. Oh, wow. And I believe it was around 2018 that it was her interest in music that eventually brought her from your family in Calgary to Ontario like did she travel to Toronto to pursue music is that why she went uh yeah and because of her boyfriend was in Toronto yeah well she'd gone to Toronto to visit her sister played some open mics met Randy and then he chased her out to Calgary they went uh tree planting together and he just wasn't comfortable living in Calgary so they went back to uh, Ontario and obviously Toronto's you know, the big smoke in Canada. So that's where you go to, to play music if you really want to be successful. And when she initially went off to, to Toronto, what was her plan? Like, did she have a job lined up and arrangements for where she was going to live? Like, was it a, a planned thing or was it a sudden move? Uh, she, uh, she had a job here and uh, they allowed her to take that job as and do it over the computer and phone and so she was able to bring her job with her and work around being a musician. And she was in Toronto for a period of time before going to Hamilton. Can you tell me what, like about her life in Toronto and the reason she would have moved to Hamilton? Like what, what, what happened there? Well, it's, uh, it's just very hard to adjust to, first of all, living with somebody else for the first time. And uh, uh, there were all kinds of circumstances. They got there last among the roommates. Holly's six feet tall, and she couldn't stand up in the room that was left for her. You know, it wasn't good living circumstances, and uh, and she was trying to live with somebody else for the first time, and then with a whole bunch of roommates also. And uh, the house was basically saturated in marijuana smoke most of the time. And I think that she she felt that uh, her band, they, they got together a three-piece band, and it was making very good music. They were making excellent music. Um, but her boyfriend, Randy, was younger and, uh, you know, and just normal things for a young man who's not really, uh, who hasn't found himself yet, basically. Ultimately, they broke up. And the band broke up. 
so I think which probably bothered her as much as anything. So she moved. Yeah. And so when the band broke up, that freed her to leave for Hamilton. Am I following that right? Well, and Holly came home for a while and then she, uh, her drummer, uh, Andrew, painted a picture of Hamilton as a great place to be. And they went back to Hamilton. And uh, she uh, really liked Andrew. And I guess maybe she really liked him more than he really liked her or he wasn't honest about it or something. I don't know what was what the deal was, but she was under the impression that there was a relationship forming there. It didn't form, and that, that led to a lot of grief on her part. In her um, her move to Hamilton, I guess, was a lot like Toronto, where she, she had a place to stay and was working her job remotely. Is that what freed her up to go there? Uh, yeah, again, she still had the job, but uh, I think that... That ultimately was also part of the challenge for her was that she was isolated all the time. She went to Hamilton and she knew Andrew and that was it. And then she was working, but she wasn't going to a job. So she was spending an awful lot of time alone or with people she sort of casually met in coffee shops and and, uh, the, the venues that she played at. So I understand, like, for instance, the, the, like, within the last venue that we know she played at, she introduced herself as being new to Hamilton. She was mm-hmm. reaching out and trying to meet new people all the time and probably put her in a very vulnerable position to be doing that. Yeah. And, and how long exactly was she in Hamilton before her disappearance? Just three months. When she first arrived in Hamilton, was it to move in with Andrew or where was she, where was she living initially when she showed up there? Well, uh, she moved in with Andrew into his apartment, and she had been planning to find her own place, too. But I think that she thought that the romantic relationship with Andrew would develop. uh, And then she realized that it wasn't happening, and she found another place, basically on Kijiji, and and, uh, moved in there uh, in the middle of November. She started moving in at the beginning of November, helped her landlord get her place set up and moved in. Was this with roommates, her new place? And, and if so, who were these people to her? Uh, we didn't know them. She had spoke well of uh, Michael, the, the landlord. She had got to know him for a couple of weeks before she moved in. She'd helped him uh, fix up the place move his place, move his stuff out of the place that she was moving into and uh, fix it up so that she could move. Wow, okay. And when she was there, did, were you in regular contact with her? Like, was this something where, like, I know every every family's, as far as contact is different, but were you and Holly in contact often? Well, yeah, she, uh, she uh, had family on the phone or texting, you know, every day or two, basically. So uh, we were in contact with her a lot. Leading up to her disappearance, did you sense anything beyond just maybe loneliness or, you know, some subtle sorrow? Like, did you feel there was a difference in her at this point? She had had uh, some extreme anxiety uh, a year before, not a year before then. It would have been in December of the previous year. She'd had some extreme anxiety living in the place that she had been, where she had to tilt her head to one side. And she felt that uh, she felt that one of her roommates was uh, gaslighting her and uh, 
hostile toward her and uh, she had a panic attack. I understand that's how it was diagnosed by people that we talked to about it. Uh, and she felt that her roommate was poisoning her. Now her brother and sister at the time thought that she was fully delusional. So my initial response like a year ago, a year prior to when she went missing was that she'd had a schizophrenic episode. But uh, uh, I talked to psychologists uh, and, and their opinion was that if it had been a schizophrenic episode, then it would have started happening more frequently uh, and nothing had happened. So we had been keeping an eye on her for a, a year keeping a really close eye on her for a year, uh, nothing had happened that, that we could pin down as anything that was uh, at all a concern mental health wise. The only thing that was happening in, in Hamilton was uh, a lot of loneliness, a lot of stress. So we were concerned about her, uh, her emotional stability, but not her psychological stability at that point. I'm Aaron Habel of Generation Y, and with me is Jack Luna of Dark Topic. We'd like to introduce you to Marooned, a new podcast that's sure to capture your attention. Tales of the catastrophically lost are what we have to offer. Hikers swallowed by the woods. Explorers discovering nothing but destitution. True crime calamity. Oddities of harrowing human experience. It's a museum of misadventure. So pack a lunch. Subscribe to Marooned wherever you find podcasts. We are waiting. Please hurry. Thank you. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Dave, when I'm reading about Holly's story, it seems like things really take a turn just days be before she went missing. I believe on, on the evening of January 9th going into January 10th, it, and this situation led to a call to 911. C can you tell me the background on what exactly happened in this situation? Uh, let's see. Back up a little bit. She confronted Andrew about her interest in him on, I don't know, December 28th or December 29th. And he said that he didn't want to do anything then. I don't know the, what, what reason he gave or anyway, he was negative. And she became very sad at that point and was on the phone in tears a number of times. And she was doing things to try to make herself feel better. She'd gone to a new uh, MMA club where she was uh, doing jujitsu and she was doing a lot of running, a lot of physical things to try to snap her out of her, uh, her sadness, basically. And, uh, and then, yeah, things changed uh, very rapidly on, we didn't even know it was happening. She, she called us the morning of the 10th left a message that you'll probably play at some point. 
Sorry to take us out of the conversation with Dave, but I want to make this portion of the narrative very clear. It's at this point, the morning of January 10th, that a distraught Holly phones her parents' home in Calgary and leaves the voicemail we heard at the beginning of the episode. I'd really, really, really like a plane ticket out of Hamilton to Calgary, please. And I would like to come home and visit you and Dave. I'm missing you so much and I love you so much. Holly's parents wouldn't hear that voicemail until some time after her disappearance. But that's irrelevant as they saw the missed call from her and phoned her back. When they reached Holly, things would start happening very fast. I'll get back to my conversation with Dave and he'll explain. Her mother called her back and then we had this conversation and said that she'd been running all night. Uh, Her mother heard it as running all night from two men. And then I heard it as running all night and that she was doing something to avoid two men. So we don't know which of those things she actually said, but I couldn't picture her running. You know, she'd been running through the woods, she said, all night. And... I couldn't picture her actually running from two men then right on her tail, but who knows? That's what her mother heard. And I heard that I asked her, you know, had you tried to, had you done something? And she said she'd done something bad and she couldn't tell us what it was. It wasn't that she didn't know what it was. It's that she couldn't tell us. And I was very concerned about her mental health at this point because the two men thing sounded bizarre to me. And it sounded, it sounded to me, my initial reaction was that she was delusional again. And so I was, because of the thing a year prior. Um, so I was concerned about her and I asked her if she could get to the airport on her own, if, if, if she could handle that herself. And she was very emotionally wrought. And I was worried about something happening to her as a, an emotional person going through the airport. You know, those people can get into trouble. I've heard of like a Polish man being shocked to death by the police in the airport mm-hmm. in Vancouver. That's a... I remember that. Yeah. So... And, and in these calls, like you, you had mentioned um, her going to the airport. Was, was she asking you to get her home or were you encouraging her to come home to Calgary? We had been encouraging her to come home for a week since her confrontation with Andrew and she was so sad. She had no reason at all to be in Hamilton anymore. So we were encouraging her to come home. And she was, she was saying that she wanted to stay and try to make it work there because she just, you know, it's the kind of thing where you don't want to back up. You don't want to, that was all she was thinking. But uh, yeah, we'd been actively encouraging her to come home and at, in the morning, on the morning of the tenth, it sounded like she she was agreeing to come home. That uh, we were going to make arrangements to make it happen. Mm-hmm. The nine one one call that was originally placed after her coming home that that morning. Can you tell the circumstances of what led to the call being made and what the result was? Yeah, it was actually the afternoon of the tenth that the call was made or afternoon or, or evening and it was made uh it was made by my son so uh my daughter went out to see her and now she's telling us that holly was extremely 
emotional and not Kate did not think that Holly was thinking clearly that she was uh, acting normally and she couldn't get Holly to trust her or agree to come with her and uh, or at least that was Kate's perception of it and Holly and her legs were extremely sore she had been running at least she definitely was afraid of something someone but we didn't really appreciate the the gravity of that and, and until later holly got kate so anxious that kate had to leave and she called her brother and we asked we also talked to him and asked him to go out to see her he had been in chicago the day before he'd flown into toronto he got off plane got on a bus headed to hamilton and went to see his sister. He normally she would pick him up from the bus station, didn't pick him up, so he walked for an hour or something to get to her place. He was let into the house, but then he stood outside her door, which was locked, and uh, asked her to come out. And uh, she would not open the door, and he left ultimately in frustration. And then we asked him to go back. He called us after that. We asked him to go back. He went back and on the way back called the police. So he made the 911 call. Police arrived, then she reassured them through the door finally that, that she was all right. And the police asked him if he thought that she was in immediate danger to herself or others. Uh, he said no, not really understanding that that would be it. And they said, well, that's all we can do. And so they didn't actually even see Holly or see inside her apartment, and they left. And you had mentioned the the phone calls that your yourself and Holly's mom had with with Holly talking about you know her night and whether it was men chasing her or, or her avoiding them or whatnot. Was this the last phone call that anyone from your family had had with her, or were you in touch after that? No, I we had more calls that evening. I, we heard from. Uh, someone associated with the house who's not actually a tenant there. She's a girlfriend of a tenant and maybe the former girlfriend of the landlord. We don't really know exactly what the relationship is. But anyway, we heard from her that uh, Holly had broken the window and she made it seem very mysterious. Holly had broken the window that there were, that she just broken the window for some reason. And so Holly was nuts. And, uh, but then she said that it's okay, we're a very uh, accepting place here, and Holly's not the only one with anxiety issues, and uh, we've asked a friend to take care of her, and a friend is, is, is being with her tonight, and, um, and so don't worry, we're taking care of the situation. And so we, we started making plans to come out to, uh, to find Holly, but we were reassured by this person, Tina, that a friend was with Holly. And in fact, it was just a roommate that Holly barely knew. So I had had a, I had had a call um, with Holly in the evening or a couple of calls uh, and had spoken to the friend, again, who was not a friend, but just a roommate. But again, she made, gave me the impression that she was a friend and Maybe that was just the impression that I got because of uh, the um, what uh, Tina had said. Uh, 
But anyway, I asked her to make sure that Holly got some sleep. Uh, and then the next day, uh, I got a, I got a text from Tina saying that uh, that they really weren't comfortable with this situation and that something had to be done immediately, something to that effect. And so I called Holly immediately and told her I was coming to get her. And she said, okay. And, but uh, she seemed to want to end the conversation. And so uh, she hung up the phone. I don't know if it was 409, whatever. And nine minutes later, she's out the door. And that's the last she was seen at that house. So you had spoke to her just minutes before she went missing by the sounds of it. Like, when did you learn that she had left and was unaccounted for? Like, how did you find out that the situation had advanced to this point? Uh, I called her a number of times immediately after that, just to, and, and got nothing. So I became very anxious and contacted Caleb again, and he went back. So he was back Maybe two hours later, he was finally back there, and nothing had been done. The roommates were sitting around. They were aware that Holly had left, but nothing had been done. And uh, he, he organized a search for her at that point, and after that, our contacts were with him. And uh, yeah, so he, he then called Holly's uh, ex, Randy, and came out and joined him for the search. A uh, number of the young men in the house helped with the search, uh, and uh, Tina lent him her car to go around. Um, and they didn't find any, anything, obviously. And one of the things that made her disappearance, at least initially, so concerning was, I understand the weather wasn't great, and she left with without any of her, you know, the things you would expect someone to take with you. Can you kind of describe what was found behind in her apartment and, and what it was like, what kind of day she was walking off into? Uh, it was a torrential downpour. I called and talked to Caleb and Randy. Uh, I had talked to them that evening and they didn't think that it was the kind of situation where somebody would be in danger of hypothermia, but it wasn't warm and extremely wet. Uh, so I was immediately, immediately extremely worried about that, as was her brother. And, uh, and they were performing their search as if she had gone off, as described by the roommates, uh, unprepared for the weather. And and that, oh, yeah, Tina said she had a baseball bat. So people were a little bit afraid that she might be violent. Um, the video shows she didn't have a baseball bat. And uh, subsequent encounters with Tina have shown that she tends to elaborate things a little bit beyond what they are. So anyway, um, anyway, she went off into the into bad weather poorly dressed is what we were told and so that was what we were most anxious about then and she i, b I believe she had left like her phone and like wallet and stuff home is this right uh 
when we searched the place, she didn't leave her wallet behind or it wasn't there. The wallet was not behind, not, not left behind in the apartment. And uh, she did have a, a black fanny pack and that was where she kept her wallet. So apparently she went with her wallet, yeah, but not her phone, okay. Okay. her keys. And how long from when like you had mentioned that when she was missing, it was initially her brother, Caleb, that was there organizing the search. When were you able to, to come join him? Can you tell me about, about that? We got the earliest possible flight, which was the next morning. So we got there. Caleb had been searching for an entire day for 24 hours. Caleb and Randy and whoever he could muster up had been searching for an entire day by the time we got there. And now, a, a lot of what's known about the search seems to come from these the series of videos. So the first one is a video that I've seen many times of, it seems to be her leaving the apartment. Is, is this like a security camera on the building or home she was living in? Well, it's actually, the landlord only ever provided stills. He provided four still images of her from two of the cameras. And my impression is that there, I don't really remember, there's somewhere between five and seven cameras in that house, all of which would have shown the odd behavior that we've talked about, we've been told about, but uh, anyway, we, we never saw any of that video. But we, what we did see ultimately was video that started with uh, the police finding video of, of Holly at a, a garbage can in the park within about 200 meters of her house and apparently taking something out of it or put, putting something into it. But unfortunately, they didn't get us that for two and a half or three weeks, something like that, because within days, all kinds of video was gone already. Most video overwrites within a day or two days or three weeks. And even the three week stuff was mostly gone by the time we went looking for it. But we found a bunch of video of Holly going up Wentworth Street. Twice. And is is Wentworth Street? Is this like a main a main street, or like what kind? Of, like, can you describe the area that she would have been last seen? It's a north south street. Uh, most of the the main streets in Hamilton run east west, but Wentworth is one of the substantial streets that goes north south. It goes between uh, King and Main, which are the the main east west thoroughfares, and uh, Burlington, which is the the northernmost uh, thoroughfare. And uh, and she was seen on camera going up that once, uh, wearing a garbage bag, and then uh, she must have circled around uh, and seen she was seen coming up again, uh, wearing a garbage bag and carrying another one. Uh, so and we also have video of her on a couple of other side streets doing part of what must be the circle and she's also carrying the garbage bag at that point yeah and just for people listening the way i understand it, it's it almost looks as though she's wearing a garbage bag as if you were trying to make like a makeshift rain jacket or something is is that how yeah, you see that show exactly yeah and in in the video where she's carrying like what appears to be like a half full garbage bag over her shoulder have you ever been able to determine like either where she got it or what was in it or where she put it? Like, is that a mystery still, this bag? This bag? It is a mystery. Uh, we've, we've made guesses. Mm -hmm. 
she passed by a, a place that's a donation center where people donate clothes. So there's a potential that she got it from there. And we believe based on her route that she would have passed near there, but we don't really know. And now, aside from these short video clips that you have of, of Holly walking this, this loop or near Wentworth or up Wentworth, has there been any other trail left behind or any other leads that, that you have to go on other than this vague direction she seemed to be traveling in? Uh, well, we didn't have that for three weeks. So we searched everywhere else, basically. She had talked about running through the woods and her, her brother, every time she'd visited, and her sister, they, they'd been taken to trails in sort of the rural areas of Hamilton. So we searched in most of the other directions first. Um, we searched uh, all the rail trails and places like that where we thought she might have just gone running because we had no idea that she'd gone in this direction. Uh, and, and so then we, when we found the video, we actively pursued other video going up in this direction. And uh, unfortunately, uh, because video was overwritten and also because it was so rainy and so dark, uh, we didn't get very much. We didn't get much beyond her going across the tracks that are just south of Burlington. And in the direction that she would have been heading, what where would that lead? Like if she had have kept a straight line, like would that lead towards woods or towards city or what is that direction? Taking her to toward a uh, toward the port, toward the port authority, but Burlington. It, if you get onto Burlington, you can go east or west from there. Both routes will take you to Toronto or to the other main highways going west. And it could also take you to St. Catharines and Niagara and out of the country or to a boat, you know, or to somebody's car where you get picked up and disappear. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of leads me to the idea of like in a story like this where there's so much mystery and so little kind of fact to point you in one direction or another, has there been any major theories that you've been following that you think may be credible? Like, is, Can you talk through what you believe are the most likely paths that she may have taken? Well, uh, we've asked many people uh, about this and everybody sees it through the lens of their own experience. So people who have experience with human trafficking and they hear about uh, the two men that she says were chasing her, and if they know anything about Hamilton also, uh, uh, they're very concerned about her having been abducted and trafficked. Um, a lot of the people on the street uh, that we encountered who said that they had seen her, uh, told us that she was on drugs, that she'd been on some kind of heavier drug, which isn't consistent with any of the conversations we have, but you know, you can't, you know, your child is not gonna tell you everything that they do. So we had to take that seriously. We were most afraid that she was mentally ill when she left. That was the main thing that we were concerned about. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence in her diaries and things like that, that she was experiencing dark times and whatnot, but we didn't have 
any real evidence apart from the last few days that there might have been delusions or anything like that. Uh, and having been to Hamilton, we cannot rule out that there actually were people that she was afraid of. She left the house and recently um, Tina let slip in in uh, in comments on a on a Facebook episode that uh, Elle and I did that uh, Holly had taken down cameras in the kitchen. That's what Tina said. And the last thing that Holly did when she left the house, and this is even shown in the stills, is to try to get into the basement server room where the camera was. It's very disturbing. She moved the cameras if Tina's telling the truth. And uh, then she definitely did attack Michael's server room immediately before leaving. So it, one of the active theories that we have to go by is that there may have been something on that video that she didn't want. She had said to us that she did something bad. We don't know what might have what that might have been. It might have been something on the video. It's very disturbing. And even though this is not our primary guess, it's something that we have to rule out. And we're not really getting any cooperation from the landlord on this. He didn't provide any video. Um, and we asked him to provide phone records for the house phone that was in what had been his apartment, but then he left it and it was in Holly's apartment, and she had been using it. We know this because uh, the number was on her phone, and we, we also know it because she was using it on her resume that she was passing around. I had talked to her about getting a different job, so, um, and she, she had taken that seriously and had put together a resume and was uh, trying to put it out there as far as I know. And that resume had the number of the home phone on it. So she definitely was using it. Michael doesn't respond to our requests to have uh, to have those phone records. So she, we don't know who she might have contacted on that. There are a bunch of oddities in what she looked at and contacted. She was looking at the airport. She made some weird searches um, looking at uh, looking at recycling and, and garbage in, in Hamilton. Uh, maybe she was trying to, to travel on a container, who knows. She made a, an odd call to an engineering firm that was right at the end of the road that her route is taking her on. Again, we don't think that's anything, but we don't really know. Yeah, and I guess it's, it's like having just random pieces of a puzzle and they could fit in any any way possible because it seems like it seems like you have a collection of dead ends almost. Yeah, we have a collection of things that are that are all actually possible, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. One thing you haven't talked about, like so much of the search, it seems to be driven by yourself and your family. Can you talk at all about this, any support you may have got from the local police? Like, did they take Holly's case seriously? You know, they, they didn't take two young men asking for help searching for their, their sister and ex-girlfriend uh, who was out 
in the pouring rain and the freezing cold. They didn't take that seriously, I have to say. That was a downfall on their part. They concluded after day five that there had been no foul play. And while I would agree that that's the most likely thing, I, I couldn't rule that out. I don't know how you would say there's no foul play. That seems like a, like a presumption rather than, rather than a, a, a fair conclusion. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, if, if you live in Hamilton and somebody goes missing in Hamilton, you have, to, you have to take a pretty good guess that there might be foul play because there's a lot of crime in Hamilton. Uh, her street has drug dealers roaming up and down it. Three or four blocks away is, is, is a, a site where there's active uh, human trafficking and prostitution. And, and you have to take those things seriously. And I, I don't really feel that they, they were taken seriously. So in, in that regard, the police have gone out to many places where we've had tips. They work very hard at that. But there seem to be two directions that the police are pulled. One is being as helpful as they can when there's something that they're offered. But the other, the other direction is, you know, just being really busy and wanting to, to make this thing uh, a non-foul play situation so that they don't have to pursue evidence at that level. You know, uh, if you can say that somebody is a prostitute or a drug dealer or a drug, drug user, it's, it's like they can then speculate that they don't need to, to follow the, the evidence as carefully as you would if somebody had been abducted or killed, you know, uh, and I'm not really sure why that is, but that's the way, that's the way the police, I think, in the country work. We, we do appreciate, yeah, we have some very good people that we've worked with, and uh, we do appreciate that they attend all the tips that we're given, that they, they show up for those, and, uh, and they, you know, they take those things seriously and they, we definitely know that they want the best for Holly. Now, since Holly's disappearance, it, it seems, at least publicly, the most notable tip or lead was a video that surfaced showing what appears to be a young woman that resembles Holly in early February. Can, can you talk about how this video came to your attention and your thoughts on if that shows Holly walking past her own missing persons poster? Uh, well, we, it, was, it was like uh, hundreds of tips that we've gotten. Uh, we were sitting having breakfast and, uh, and a tip came in asking, that, uh, asking if we knew Holly and what she looked like and whatnot. And said yes and it was nothing in particular but then she sent a video and this was the first video that we'd had where somebody said i think i've seen your daughter where we had to believe it and uh, it really really looks like holly except we don't have a face uh, there are a number of things that uh, are distinctive about holly she's large she is a, she's tall she has massive thighs from her wrestling it's uh, they're very strong. She has a, she's got a particular kind of gait with a little bit of a limp. Uh, she, she, she has had, at that point anyway, long uh, and curly 
reddish hair. So all of these things this person had. There were a lot of things that led us to believe it was Holly. And then we have the eyewitnesses uh, reason for calling us and for looking for this video was that this, this woman walked within 10 feet of her and, and thought, I think that's Holly. And then pursued the video, sent it to us, and it really, really looks like her. And, and this video was, just so I understand, was taken about a month after she was last seen. And was it also shot in and around the area she, she was living? It was very close. It was on February 3rd, and it was very close to the place that she was sighted going up Wentworth. It would have, it would have been on a street going across that ultimately goes across Wentworth there within a few blocks of it. And so this just came to you as like a random phone call or, or message or whatnot. Are you hearing from people with like tips or like comments a lot? Is this something where you're reacting to tips being sent to you? Can you talk a bit about things you would have received? We were really actively canvassing for video uh, from the uh, from January the 11th when this tip came in. And, and then we saw the video and we pursued it and we found a whole bunch of other videos showing some of the this woman's path. But also people have been all the way along, they've been sending in hundreds. How many tips? Thousands? 1,600 1, wow. tips. Um, and most of them are, are people who look a little bit like Holly. Mostly that's the tips that we get. We've had tips where uh, somebody had seen her, again, in the very same area. There's a track that runs along just uh, north of Barton. People saw her there fairly frequently. And at one point we had uh, a dog down there and, and both times, I'm not sure how much confidence I have in these dogs, but both times they, they picked up what seemed to be her scent. They had, we had, Holly's clothes, and they seem to pick up her scent down there. So, again, I, I don't know what that means in this case because the police dogs definitely are not trained to do that. The other dog, though, should have been actually trained to do that. So we had a bunch of stuff that led us to believe that she was right in a very small area in Hamilton, and we spent an enormous amount of effort canvassing there and and just driving around there and trying to be there at every hour of the day. And we, we really came up with nothing, unfortunately. And I understand that very recently there was a, not I wouldn't say a tip, but there was information you received that created a large buzz in, in the, amongst your family and the investigators. Can you tell me a little bit about the ransom demand? I think it was just uh, two or three days ago we had a ransom demand from somebody who said that his man had taken Holly and now three months later, he wants $7,000 for her. And Al was negotiating with him and asked for a proof of life. He said oh, it was, she was hours away. She was miles away and that, um, and that he'd need $500 to make the trip to get proof of life. And then he said he'd need $200 and, <laughs> so it was funny in a way, but uh, the police really helped out in that case. They, uh, they, uh, the Hamilton police were 
actively involved in the Calgary police, and there was a lot of coordination between them, and we really appreciate that help. Uh, we weren't really able to, to figure out who this was, but we're pretty sure that somebody who's not able to provide proof of life doesn't actually have Holly. In this, I'm assuming that this is an outlier in terms of information you'd receive. Like this can't be a regular thing where you're hearing people trying to take advantage of you, likely. It's the third extortion attempt, actually. But wow. <laughs> no, if you know, and and here's the thing: like, you don't even need to extort me to. Uh, you don't need to extort me uh, if you if you have some proof of, of life of Holly. I'll I'll get you some money if you can prove Holly's alive. You know, yeah, there's no question of that. So it's unnecessary, really, to extort me to, to you know, all you, all you have to say is, I have video of Holly and send it along. You'll be sure you'll get some money. You know, the, the search as far as like the boots on the ground portion of the search seems to be held up now as a result of the pandemic. Can, can you talk about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting the search for Holly? Well, it's meant that we couldn't be there for the last month. It's been agonizing. It's uh, been very difficult. And uh, yeah, we've gotten a number of tips that we actually think are credible, even in the last couple of weeks, just from from people who have been either driving and have uh, seen somebody they thought was, was Holly. There was one very credible one that I really wanted to be there for. Uh, but people are there. And they're keeping their eyes open, and it's been very—it's uplifting that, that to know that people are still uh, interested. So now, as you had just mentioned, we're three, four months away from her disappearance. Are in your mind? Are you still pursuing this as her being alive somewhere and either held against her will or due to mental state, unable to find her way home? Like. What do you feel is happening? Well, you know, as a father, as somebody who who knows the rational and not mentally disturbed Holly, there's no context in which she would do this to us. Do you know what I mean? Deliberately. Um, so mm -hmm. that part of me believes she's dead. But um, uh, if I look at it rationally, if she was uh, mentally ill, it's, it's not the kind of thing where she's staggering around without any kind of, uh, without any kind of bearing or uh, ability to, to take care of herself. Uh, it would be something where she uh, still has her capacities, but believes something erroneous. Or, again, she could be held against her will. She could be held against her will, or she could be so paranoid, so frightened that, uh, uh, you know, I... I Talked to somebody who said she was convinced that if she ever was found, she would be, this is somebody who had a mental break. If she was ever found, she would be tortured for the rest of her life and her family would be tortured. You know, so if Holly is out there, it's because she believes she's in danger and is hiding or is being held against her will. And uh, rationally, if I, if I look at it rationally and not emotionally, I have to think that the signs are that mental illness was most likely and that 
and that she's actively hiding from us. Mm-hmm. Not from us, but from whatever it is she's afraid of. And she's doing a really good job. And I, I, th- I think it goes without saying there's been no activity on bank accounts, social media. There's no sign of that. No. Now, for people who are who are listening, who want to get involved in some way to support you in the search for Holly, what can people do to help raise awareness and to help back you up on this? Uh, there's a there's a Facebook search group where you can find uh, uh, most of this information. We have a GoFundMe page. Also, uh, we set our we set our funding goal at I think ten thousand dollars, which has been exceeded, but Chances are this is turning into a some kind of a horrible marathon, so we might have to adjust that. And you can call 911 if you see her. There's all kinds of pictures of her on this Facebook search group. If you look up Holly Clark search, you'll find it. If you're interested in getting to know her, she has uh, her music up on Bandcamp, Holly Clark Bandcamp. Um, and you, if you're not sure, you can you can send a message to the to the search team, and that's on the Holly Clark search group. I want to thank you for joining Dave Clark and I in this conversation surrounding the disappearance of his missing daughter, Holly Clark. As I said in the intro to this episode, I see this type of coverage as being much more than an intriguing story. We heard Dave describe the lengths that he and his family have gone to follow whatever vague trail Holly managed to leave behind. They obviously need all the help they can get. And the way I see it, 50,000 or so of us just heard his story. And who knows, maybe one of us knows something. Or perhaps some of us want to contribute to the GoFundMe that's being used to cover the financial costs of the search. For any of you who are interested, I've added some links associated with the search for Holly Clark in the episode notes, including a link to the Holly Clark Search Facebook group, which is probably the best place to go if you want to stay up to date with any future developments in the search. And with that said, we'll end this episode of Nighttime. When the show returns in the coming days, we'll dig a bit deeper into the story of Holly's disappearance. In the next episode, we'll be joined by Elle, a dedicated supporter of the Clark family and a central figure in the search. But now, before we part, I'm going to end with some thanks. First, a huge thank you to Dave Clark for joining me and sharing this heartbreaking story. A big thanks to the Canadian bands Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause who provide the musical themes for this episode. And lastly, but most importantly, a huge thank you to all the listeners of Nighttime. Without you, the show would have seen the light of day many moons ago. And with that said, if you want more Nighttime, let me suggest the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can access a separate feed in which the episodes are posted earlier than in the free feed and are done so without paid advertising. But beyond the regular episodes, the premium feed also includes the Nightcap After Show, in which I and a guest climb a bit further down the rabbit holes. You can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, I want to thank the newest subscribers to the premium feed. Dr. Steers, Lisa, Italia, 
Camille, Erica, Chantel, and Justin. Thank you all for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, but can't do so financially, you can give me a big hand by simply telling your friends about me. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or would like to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and keep your eyes open for Holly Clark. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. I'm going to leave you all with a closing treat. We've talked a lot about Holly Clark's music during this episode. I'm going to share my favorite tune of hers that I've come across. It's called Fake Romance. Enjoy. i
Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.